Okay, welcome. I see we're building the crowd back up again, right? So maybe we'll get back to the uh, overflow situation that we had before uh, COVID, right? And then, then we can say that life is back to normal. <clears throat> All right, let's, let's get going. I think I got an interesting one for you here today. Uh, a topic that uh, you usually don't hear too much about and that is science in the courtroom. And there is a lot of interesting stuff to talk about. Now, as, as many of you know, um, I think uh, uh, about what we do through, uh, through my office, and uh, we try to separate strengths from nonsense. That's basically what we, we try to do. And uh, we try to counter the snake oil salesman out there and uh, hopefully replace the snake oil with uh, science. And also, uh, I think as some of you know, I'm a big fan of Sherlock Holmes. <laughs> and there, there is a good reason for that. And it is a line that comes from one of the stories. But it's a capital mistake to theorize before one has data, because insensibly one begins to twist facts to suit theories instead of theories to suit facts. And that is really the essence of science, isn't it? We want evidence, we want the facts. 
And then we can build a theory around that. You don't start out with some preconceived notion and try to fit the facts into that, as some people try to do. There's a big difference between fact and opinion. I mean, you know, you can have opinion about, about anything, and you can make up your opinion, but you can't make up facts. So, when it comes to facts, uh, that is the, the cornerstone, that is the essence of science. The word science itself comes from the Latin for knowledge, right? That's what science is. But the way we know anything is through experimentation and making sure that what we think is true really is true by duplicating whatever experiment originally led us down that, that path. In science, we tend to worship at the altar of peer review. The peer-reviewed scientific literature is really the greatest weapon that we have in, in science. How does it work? In a very simply stated format, the researcher and his group will carry out a study. They will write that up as a scientific paper that is submitted to a journal. The editor of the journal will then send it out to what we call referees who are experts in the field uh, who review it. Very often there's a lot of back and forth. They, they ask for more work to be done. They ask for more data, maybe reevaluation of data. It goes back and forth. And eventually a decision is made by the editor uh, to either publish or not publish the paper. It is of course not foolproof for the reason that humans are not foolproof. And if someone is going to submit data that is poor or fraudulent, you're not going to catch it until someone tries to duplicate the work and finds that they can't. Because obviously the reviewers of that paper cannot redo the work. When you get a scientific paper to judge, that is to review, you have to assume that whatever is submitted uh, is all honest. And whatever data they submit is data that was properly um, uh, gathered. So, besides science, unfortunately, we also have pseudoscience. Pseudoscience is, is a little bit hard to define, but we'll give it a try. It's something that does on the surface sounds reasonable, but doesn't have any evidence to go along with it. One example of this would be a scheme that was hatched in the 1800s called phrenology. And the idea here was that by the shape of the skull, you could determine certain characteristics. Now, on the surface, that kind of sounds plausible, right? Because we know the importance of the brain. So, it, you know, it, it sounds kind of reasonable that the shape of the brain could somehow be reflected in the shape of, of the skull. But there is just no evidence for that, even though this was a huge area of practice with the belief that specific parts of the head as could be determined by the shape of the skull, uh, had different functions. Now, the fact is that, you know, this is not a totally stupid idea, because, of course, we know that the brain does have 
different parts and, and our language and our speech and our vision is centered in different uh, areas. But you know, even back then, they knew that this idea of just determining what's going on inside the head by the shape of the skull was somewhat far-fetched. And there were cartoons, you know, at the time making um, fun of this. But nevertheless, this was a practice that was quite widespread. People were going to phrenologists to decide what sort of schooling their children should have or what would be an appropriate occupation for them. And then they try to squeeze some science into this by coming up with devices like this that would actually measure the shape of the skull and the bumps on the head. This is just total nonsense because there is no evidence for it whatsoever. No one has ever been able to show that what phrenologists determine from the shape of the skull has anything to do with someone's character, talent, or propensity to carry out some sort of task. So this is pseudoscience. But there are other types of pseudoscience that at first seem pretty scientific. For example, bite marks. Now you would think that bite marks are pretty specific because our teeth are pretty unique, right? Uh, the spacing between the teeth, the shape of the teeth, pretty unique. You would think that it is sort of tantamount to a fingerprint. That is, no two people will have exactly the same set of teeth shaped the same way with the same distance between them, right? This should be something that is characteristic. And one would think that if it comes to, to the courtroom, if someone presents data based upon bite marks, that that should be uh, substantial and should be accepted by the court. Well, this is actually pseudoscience that we will see a little bit later from some real life uh, cases. Then there's also what we can call deceptive science. Or another way we can phrase this is uh, tricky science. What do we mean by this? What we mean is taking some legitimate pieces of science, but interpreting them in a way that is not justified by what the science says. I'll give you an example. This is a product uh, that was introduced in the, about 20 years ago. 7-Up Cherry Antioxidant. Now, of course, as soon as you put antioxidant into an ad, that conjures up some sort of health benefit, right? Uh, people may not know what antioxidants are, uh, but they've heard enough of them in the context of a, a, advertising to think that this is a good thing. And by and large, that's true. All right, so 7-Up Cherry Antioxidant has never been a more delicious way to cherry pick your antioxidant. <laughs> That's an interesting way to <laughs> phrase it, and they, they probably don't really realize the irony of that, because what this ad really does is cherry picks data in order to fulfill what they say. Anyway, when you see an ad like this, and you assume that there are antioxidants in there, where do you assume that those beneficial chemicals are coming from? The cherries, right? 
I mean, why else would this be promoted as a cherry uh, product? Well, let's look at the label. There it is. High fructose corn syrup, that's just a sweetener, citric acid, that's a preservative, natural flavors, potassium benzoate. Vitamin E. Well, vitamin E is the antioxidant they're talking about, not coming from cherries. It is added to the, uh, to the beverage. So this is, you know, pretty inventive uh, advertising. And uh, the fact that it contains some vitamin E has nothing to do with the uh, cherries. But if, as if that weren't enough, Cherries are red, but they have pits, so we used antioxidants to get rid of zits, okay? <laughs> Stop worrying about how you look. Relax and drink new Cherry 7-Up Antioxidant. Every bottle is loaded with 100% natural flavor and healthy antioxidants like vitamin E to help fight acne and prevent skin damage. So, when I said cherry picking, that's the right term. Because there are some studies in the literature that you can look at which shows that if you rub vitamin E on your skin, it prevents ultraviolet light from passing through. Most studies actually don't show that. But even let's say that that were true, that topical vitamin E does have an effect on, on, uh, on acne. It has nothing to do with putting it into a beverage. Okay, that would be just uh, uh, total nonsense. So anyway, what was the outcome of this? The manufacturer was sued and uh, they actually decided that it would cost them too much to go to court and fight it. So the product was discontinued. But by that time, the lawyers had made a fortune. <laughs> the, the plaintiff who made the, the complaint only got about $5,000, but the attorneys made about uh, over $200,000. Uh, um, all right, so we've seen what pseudoscience is, seen what tricky science is, but perhaps the greatest enemy of, of science is quackery. Uh, again, uh, it is uh, a little bit difficult to, to define, but uh, what really distinguishes quackery from, from pseudoscience uh, is that the intent is very clear in terms of making money. That's the point, okay? Uh, I mean, pseudoscience, like, you know, we looked at, at phrenology or the bite mark problem. Uh, there are all kinds of issues with that, but it wasn't created as a business to make money. They, they were, uh, I'm sure that the original phrenologists really believed in, in what they were doing. In quackery, it is almost never the case that the quack believes what they are doing. It's all constructed in order to, uh, to make money. For example, you can go online, the web, and find this thing being marketed for $300, zero-point energy rod that you wave in front of someone and it will do all of these things, discharge energy blockages in our body. Well, as soon as you see a statement like that, you know, this is nonsense. I mean, energy doesn't flow through our body, you know, and get blocked, it's just a nonsense concept. 
uh, and you can see all the things that it claims to do. $300 for this. Well, I thought that was a little bit steep. But one day it went on sale for 75. <laughs> so I thought this was a pretty good investment just to see what this, this was all about. So I ordered it. So it comes, it looks like a pen, exactly like a, a ballpoint pen, except it has no point. It's sealed at that, that end. So I don't know what the hell this was. How could it do anything, you know? Could there maybe be some sort of radioactive material in it or somebody, I mean, I don't know. Uh, so I have a friend who's a dentist and he's got an x-ray machine. So we x-rayed it and there it is. It's a piece of solid metal with a crack in it. That's all that it is. How does it do whatever it's supposed to do and how is it that there are some people who will tell you that as soon as this thing was waved in front of them, their aches and pains disappeared? How can that be? Well, this, of course, is the manifestation of the placebo effect. If you think that something is going to work, 30 to 40% of the time it works because your body, your mind wants to convince your body of its effect. There's nothing wrong with that. As long as you're not making any claims of cure, placebos don't cure anything. They can take your mind off of the problem. So you can actually be less sensitive to your pains, but it's not going to take away whatever is the cause of that pain. So that's where the, the quackery uh, comes in. Oh, and there are many examples like that. Look at this absurdity, energy dots. Now, this comes with the premise that we are flooded with electromagnetic radiation due to Wi-Fi, radio, TV, that is harming us. For which there is absolutely no evidence. And that putting these dots on your computer and on your phone and on your Alexa thing, that this is going to somehow solve the non existent problem. Okay. Uh, but people will go and pay for this. It's a big business out there. When you go online, you can, you can just go on Amazon, you'll see how many of these things there is, different varieties of, of this, really quite incredible. All right, so we've seen pseudoscience, we've seen tricky science, we've seen quackery, but when it comes to the courtroom, the most interesting aspect is what we call junk science. Now, this is a different uh, uh, category because this is the use of properly done experiments and legitimately gathered data, but used in a way to further your own ends, usually by cherry picking uh, data and not giving a whole uh, picture. Uh, one of the best descriptions of it is by Chris Fabricant, who wrote a book on junk science that I'll refer to a little bit later, uh, so this is really speculation that is passed off as being evidence-based. That's what junk science is. And usually there's a motive there to push some sort of an agenda. So you have something in mind, and then you just scrutinize the scientific literature to find something that supports your point of view, 
so that you can declare that your point of view is science-based. But you ignore all other studies that may have a different outcome. The classic example of this is that of secondhand smoke. Now, of course, the tobacco industry, as, as you know, uh, right from the beginning, uh, has uh, supported researchers uh, who attempt to show that there's nothing wrong with smoking, especially with secondhand smoke, because there's been a lot of talk about secondhand smoke being injurious. And of course, who wants to sit in some restaurant where someone is smoking and you're inhaling their, their smoke? But the tobacco industry, going back to the 70s, has lined up all kinds of studies showing that there's no harm in secondhand smoke. And these were studies that were properly peer reviewed and made it into the scientific uh, literature. The only thing is that the researchers here were funded by the tobacco companies. And that is quite apparent here. Uh, acute myocardial infarction, heart attack, uh, before and after statewide smoking bans. And uh, the thrust of this paper is that there is no connection between heart attacks and secondhand smoke. Well, you can see, I dredged out from the you know end of the paper, the researchers are supported by the tobacco industry. Now, I, I think it is also fair to, to kind of add a footnote here. And that is that just, just because some study is funded by a vested interest doesn't mean that it should be totally disregarded and, and thrown into the garbage. Why? Because, I mean, let, let's say you're a, a researcher who wants to investigate some study in nutrition, let's say whether or not eating soup before a meal cuts down on the total calories of your of that meal. Will you therefore eat less of something else? That would be a, a pretty legitimate study, right, that you want to do. Now, if you're looking for funds for such a study, where are you going to go? Government money these days is very hard to come by. Right. So if you're going to carry out a study, you're going to approach someone to give you money to fund the study. Well, if you're going to do a study on, on soup, are you going to go to a plumbing company or a car manufacturer? Of course not. You're going to approach Campbell Soup or some other company, right? Who might donate the money to you? Now, what is their motive for donating money? Their hope, of course, is that whatever you find is going to be to their benefit. Okay? And that may be the case. I mean, maybe it is true that you could do a study and find that if you eat soup before eating anything else, you'll eat less of whatever else so that you'll be consuming fewer calories. No one has ever done that, I don't, not to my knowledge. But, you know, I mean, it's a reasonable possibility that you might want to explore. So if the researcher does that and finds that that is indeed the case, I mean, obviously, Campbell's Soup would make hay with that, right, and publicize that all over the place. And it's legitimate, even though they, they funded it. 
Of course, where the problem might come in is that if you get money from Campbell's Soup to study this, and you find out that eating soup before a meal just increases the total number of calories that you're going to consume, well, that study might never see the light of day, right? That's the problem. But just because something is funded by a vested interest doesn't necessarily rule out its legitimacy, but it does mean that you want to take a more careful look at it, right? Uh, and uh, of course, uh, we know that smoke of all kinds, including secondhand smoke, is, is, indeed, uh, is indeed a problem. So trying to portray it as if it were not by cherry-picking a few papers that show that it's not and ignoring all of the papers that show that smoking is dangerous, that's junk science. When it comes to the courtroom, it is, of course, very, very important to determine whether or not any science is presented is junk or not. And this is where the question of expert witness comes in. Because when there is a case in the court that requires some sort of evidence that has scientific connection, you have to know that whoever is going to testify is enough of an expert in that area because judges and lawyers cannot be experts in science, but they need to know that those witnesses are reliable. So let me tell you the evolution of this in the courtroom because it makes for really a fascinating story. And we're going back to 1923. This article in the Washington Herald, unfortunately, it can't get a better picture of that, so let me read it to you. One alleged murderer and a second man, a participant in a recent gun battle, were caught in the district police uh, dragnet yesterday. James Alfonso Fry, colored 24, 26th Street Northwest, was arrested in connection with the murder of Dr. Robert Brown, wealthy colored physician. 1923, Des described as colored, right? It's pretty interesting. Right? I mean, this is, this is not this times of slavery. This is not civil war era. This is 1923, right? And this was quite common to describe someone as, as colored. So anyway, uh, James uh, uh, Alfonso Fry was arrested and found to be, um, was accused of this crime and indeed was found to be uh, guilty. However, the, during the trial, the defense introduced Dr. William Marston, who was a Harvard graduate in law, but also in psychology. And Marston had invented the world's first lie detector. Now, it was a very primitive uh, method at that time, mostly based on blood pressure. The idea was that when you're lying, your blood pressure is going to go up because you're nervous, you're anxious, you're putting effort into lying, blood pressure goes up. And he had some evidence for this. Uh, he uh, took James Fry, took his, applied the blood pressure monitor, etc., and asked the proper questions, and he declared that whatever Fry was saying was the truth. 
and that he really was innocent. However, the judge made a ruling and the judge ruled that because this test was not generally accepted by the scientific community, it was not admissible in the courtroom. Now, of course, it was not generally accepted by the scientific community because he had just invented this. Marsden had just introduced this new method. So, of course, it hadn't gone around, you know, the scientific uh, community. But this idea came to be known as the Fry standard. So that whatever procedure was introduced was only allowed to be regarded by the jury as, as factual if it was some procedure that was generally accepted by the scientific community. So this was the Fry standard and was followed not only in the US, it was essentially followed in all of the, uh, the Western uh, countries. Well, uh, Marsden uh, is regarded as you know, the person who first introduced the lie detector. But uh, after it was not accepted here, he took a different route and actually he even uh, left uh, both psychology and the law. And he became famous, curiously, in a totally different area. He was the inventor of Wonder Woman, one of the most uh, uh, widely read uh, comics. This was introduced in 1941, and uh, it was hugely successful. Now, Marston was a very, very interesting person in many different ways. He uh, was really a feminist. He thought that women were not getting chances that they should get in any aspect of life. And Wonder Woman represented that. Uh, she wanted women to break out of their chains, you know, chains into which men had uh, put them. And Marsden also invented the lasso of truth, which Wonder Woman uses. She lassoes someone, and once she has lassoed them, they tell the truth. So Marston was an interesting person, but even more interesting than the fact that he invented Wonder Woman was his private life, uh, which indeed was kinky. While he was at Harvard, where he eventually became a professor, he fell in love with one of his students. Not all that unusual, except for the fact that he brought her home and had her live in their house. And the three of them, his wife uh, and the young student, lived together for years, pretending that she was just a, a relative who was living with them. But they actually had a, a menage a trois. And one of the most more interesting aspects of this is that once Marsden died, the two women lived together for another 40 years. <laughs> Pretty interesting story, right? You would think that someone would make a movie out of this story. Someone did. <laughs> and you, you can find it online, you can, you can stream it. 
it's Professor Marston and the Wonder Women, which of course is a very interesting play on words also, right? Because he invented Wonder, uh, wonder Woman. So uh, he played a big role in, in the history of, of, of the court because uh, basically it was his work with the lie detector that, that uh, engendered the whole Fry story. And uh, this is what judges always asked uh, witnesses. Is it something that is accepted by the scientific community? Now let's jump to 1985 and a dreadful case where Charles McCrory was convicted of murdering his, his wife. And the jury heard testimony from a dentist who investigated a bite mark on the lady's shoulder, because apparently they got into a fight and fighting, and anyway, he killed her, so the accusation was. And Dr. Richard Soveron, who uh, called himself a forensic odontologist, testified that the uh, bite marks on the victim uh, meshed a plaster cast that he had taken of the accused person's mouth. And he said that this was proof that, that uh, he had bitten her while well, he maintained that he hadn't even uh, uh, been there. And the, this was admitted as evidence in the courtroom based upon the Fry standard, because it was generally accepted by forensic odontologists. Well, of course, it was generally accepted by them because they had invented the whole idea of testing for bite marks. And they had created their own society, the American Board of Forensic Odontologists. So, Essentially, they were accepting what was presented in the, in, in the courtroom because they had made, come up with this whole idea. So of course it was generally accepted. And to give you an extreme example, this, this is like saying that homeopathy is valid because it is generally accepted by the homeopaths, right? So it was really the, the fox in charge of the hen house and then in 1993, there was a large-scale investigation in the U.S. about the validity of all kinds of forensic science. And they showed very clearly that bite marks, in fact, were not like fingerprints. That you could not identify this. And how did they do that? Because they took plaster casts and they used them to bite the skin of cadavers. And then they asked the forensic odontologist to match the bite mark to the plaster casts, and they could not do it. There was too much variability. And the fact is that Sauvignon, the guy who had testified in the original trial, recanted his testimony because he was convinced now by this 1993 uh, analysis. So there was a retrial and the murder conviction was upheld because the judge ruled 
that the jury would have come to the same conclusion even without the bite marks. It was a sort of a, a, a curious finding, finding. And he is still in jail today. Based on the bite marks that were shown to be invalid, but the judge said, look, the, the, uh, the jury listened to all kinds of evidence and they didn't make up their mind only based on, on, on the bite marks. Um, this is a case that is much being discussed in legal circles. And in fact, uh, Chris Fabrican, who I mentioned earlier, has written a book on this, a Junk Science in the American Criminal System. And he heads what is called the Innocent, Innocence Project in New York. And this is an organization of lawyers who uh, want to get innocent people out of jail. And there are a lot of innocent people out of jail. I mean, you know, you'll occasionally hear stories of uh, someone who now, because of DNA evidence that has come to light, has been released from jail. And estimates are that about 1% of all people in jail are there and they are innocent. Now, that doesn't sound like a lot, right? 1%. But uh, in the US, there are a couple of million people who are in jail, by far more than any other, any other country in the world. 1% of that is a high number. So Fabrican and his Innocent Project are, are focused on getting junk science out of the, the courtroom. And one big step towards doing that was taken in 1993, again, the same year that that study that I showed you about the validity of forensic evidence came out. And this is a classic case. This is something that, that any lawyer who's gone through law school will uh, be familiar with. The case of Daubert uh, against uh, Merrill Dow Pharmaceuticals. This case revolved around a drug called Bendectin, which was taken by pregnant women uh, in order to uh, reduce the chance of miscarriage. Okay? The evidence for this is, was very cursory in, in, in the first place. But then the allegation was that it led to birth defects. And this was when Daubert uh, sued Merrill Law, uh, uh, Merrill Dow, for putting the drug on the market that caused birth defects. She was the mother of a child who was born with malformed lips. So it was an interesting case. And of course it went to, uh, went to the court and uh, the defense spoke and uh, showed that they have statistics about the incidence of birth defects in women who had taken bendectin and the incidence of birth defects in the general population of women who had not taken bendectin. And they accumulated data showing that there was no difference, that the women who had taken the bendectin were as likely to give birth to, to malformed children as someone who had not taken uh, the drug. So that was the defense's uh, argument. And they, you know, produced evidence statistical evidence showing that, that the incidence was the same in, in, in uh, both groups. And then the, the plaintiff 
brought out their own witnesses, the so-called expert witnesses, who then reanalyzed the data and claimed that the original analysis had been, been faulty and that indeed there was a greater incidence of uh, malformations in the women who had uh, taken uh, bendectin. And the judge did not accept this because said that the opinion offered by the expert witness, who happened to be Dr. Shana Swan, who had reanalyzed the company's own data, he said that this method of interpreting data, this reanalysis that she did, was not generally accepted by the scientific community. So therefore, it was not valid. The Shana Swan uh, is an interesting person because she has been in the news recently as well. Uh, she is one of these scientists who claims that, that uh, there's a, a decrease in general fertility and in testosterone because of chemicals in the environment. Uh, so she's been in this game for a long time. So anyway, uh, the, uh, the court uh, at that time decided in favor of uh, the company, uh, Merrill Dow, because he said, based upon the Fry standard, uh, he couldn't allow this because her method of analysis was not generally accepted by the scientific community. Well, the plaintiffs then appealed and it went to the Supreme Court uh, of the United States. And uh, the original court had ruled against, uh, uh, against the plaintiff in the summary judgment. And then the Supreme Court had a different opinion. Here's the lawyer for Merrill Dow speaking to the uh, uh, Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court said that the Fry standard needs to be overruled because it was too strict, uh, because it is possible to have some sort of uh, scientific uh, evidence. That's not me. I don't know what the hell that is. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so the, the, the court ruled that, that it certainly is possible to introduce some sort of scientific data, some sort of scientific experiment that is relatively novel and is only accepted by a small segment of the scientific community, but that doesn't mean that it is invalid. We've never seen that before, that in the middle it, yeah. We're going to reboot the projection. Wow. Oh, there we go. There we go. Okay. Don't know. Anyway, so they said that Fry standards should be overruled. And the Supreme Court, uh, I, I think it's a majority opinion. Uh, Supreme Court in the United States, as you know, is, is the ultimate authority. And uh, it is one of the, to me anyway, the Supreme Court in the US is one of the most bizarre things. <laughs> because uh, the Supreme Court is the ultimate court in the land. It should be the most unbiased, right? And yet, it, each member of the Supreme Court is declared as having a, a political alliance. It's not even hidden, it's open, right? I mean, it's, they're, they're appointed by their president, 
So the ones that Trump appointed obviously are, are in his corner, etc. It is absolutely ridiculous. Ridiculous. It, it's hard to find words for the stupidity that you have the ultimate court in the land, which is openly biased, right? Strange. And then, of course, the other part of it is that there is that you're appointed for life. Yeah. There's no age limit, right? You, you can have a senile uh, Supreme Court justice. At least in Canada, we don't have that. There is age limit. So anyway, so the Supreme Court ruled that the Fry standard uh, is not what should be considered. And they replaced it what has been called the Dobert standard, where the judge has the power to determine who's an expert witness. And of course, that puts a burden on the judge. And the judge has to consider these issues. Has the expert's methodology been tested? Has there been substantiation by peer review? Do we know what the potential errors are? And they also consider general acceptance. But that is not critical. You can accept some testimony, even though it may be known only to a subsection of the scientific community. But basically what the Daubert standard said is let's always make sure we are using the scientific method. That whatever data is submitted is based upon proper experimentation, reproduction of the experiment. Uh, it does not have to be something that is universally accepted as long as there's sound data to support it. So what was the outcome here? The judge ruled that even under the Daubert standard, he ruled in favor of Merrill Dow because said that the expert witnesses that had been introduced by the plaintiff uh, did not provide enough sound evidence to say that that Bendectin was harmful. But the reason that this has become such a landmark case and that it is taught in every law school is because it introduced the idea that the judge can determine who is or is not an expert witness. And the criterion is not whether or not what the witness says is accepted by the general scientific community, but whether or not the data or the information has been gained through proper scientific methodology. So uh, Daubert uh, is still around, uh, both the mother and the son. And uh, he is, uh, as you can see, his right arm is deformed and one of his feet is, is deformed. Uh, but he is uh, normal, uh, mentally to totally normal. He's some sort of IT consultant. And uh, hanging there in their living room is this article from the New York Times, which uh, says justices put judges in charge deciding reliability of scientific testimony. So it's a very interesting uh, uh, case. And this is what is now considered to be the standard in the court of law. So let's take a look at a case, see whether or not it is junk science or not. 
popcorn lung. Okay? I mean, just look at that. First, it sounds kind of silly. Well, when we talk about popcorn lung, we're talking about a condition known as bronchiolitis obliterans, which in fact is a very, very serious uh, lung condition due to the inhalation of a chemical called diacetyl. It's a pretty simple compound. It is used as butter flavoring, mostly in microwave popcorn. It also has that characteristic smell. And it's a very recognizable buttery kind of smell. We have known for quite some time, since 2004, about bronchiolitis obliterans being present in workers in the factories where this thing is made. And of course, I mean, you know, that, that uh, microwave popcorn is a very popular product. So it's, it's made on a, on a very, very large scale. Well, in 2009, a lawsuit was brought by a former employee. And the judgment was $7.5 million in his favor because he had developed this lung disease while working in the microwave popcorn plant. And the judgment was that because it was known since 2004 that there was a link between diacetyl and this disease, the company should have taken better measures to reduce inhalation of this, uh, this chemical. So anyway, he, he, he got the money and it also had a big effect on the industry because since that time, they have a lot of safety measures. They, they wear all kinds of protective uh, equipment. But that's in an occupational setting. What about when you're eating microwave popcorn at home? That's a more interesting question. 2012, Wayne Watson, $7.2 million because he claimed that he got the same problem, the same lung problem, never worked in the industry, but he had been eat regularly eating microwave uh, popcorn. Now, the 7.2 million, as you can imagine, came after a long court battle in which various witnesses were introduced. And the plaintiff introduced Dr. Cecil Rose who was an expert in pulmonology, who testified that this disease, this bronchiolitis, is so rare, so rare, that it has only been seen in people who are exposed to diacetyl, not anyone else. So she said that we cannot explain that this gentleman had this disease from any other reason, except that it came from popcorn. Now, as you can imagine, the defendant, the company, the manufacturer, uh, violently protested against this and said that, you know, the, this, this was not enough uh, uh, evidence. And uh, this, again, was referred to a higher court. And eventually, the judge said that uh, uh, he agreed that the expert really was an expert and that her opinion should be taken into, uh, into consideration. 
and the judgment was 7.2 million. I think it was subsequently somewhat reduced by the judge. The judge, uh, you know, when there were when there is a, a money decision made, the judge always has the option of uh, reducing that. I, I don't remember how much it was reduced, but I mean, he, he got still many uh, millions of, of, of dollars. On the other hand, by contrast, here's another similar case. Newkirk also claimed bronchiolitis due to eating microwave popcorn. This was in a different court and a different jury. You know, you can arrive at different uh, conclusions. And in this case, the judge did not accept the testimony of the expert witness. The expert witness testimony was not allowed. It was excluded because the judge ruled that it was uh, unreliable. The expert witness in this case was Dr. David Elligman, who actually had a history of being an expert witness in many similar cases, toxic, tox, toxicity cases. And he's highly regarded uh, you know, as an expert. But the judge ruled that in this case, he was not uh, knowledgeable enough. And this led to another interesting decision. And this time it was Elegman who sued the court for having excluded him as an expert witness. Listen to this, because this is really interesting. The Daubert ruling eliminates my ability to testify in this case and others. I will lose the opportunity to bill for services in this case and in others, although I generally donate most fees related to courtroom testimony to charitable organizations. The lack of opportunity to do so is an injury to me. Based on my experience, it is virtually certain that some lawyers will choose not to attempt to retain me as a result of this ruling. Some lawyers will be dissuaded from retaining my services because the ruling is replete with unsubstantiated pejorative attacks on my qualifications as a scientist and expert. The judge's rejection of my opinion is primarily an ad hominem attack and not based on actual analysis of what I said. In an effort to deflect the ad hominem nature of the attack, the judge creates straw man arguments and then knocks the straw man down without ever addressing the substance of my position. This went to a higher court and the court ruled against him, said that the original judge was in fact correct in excluding his, uh, uh, his uh, testimony. So after all of these, and, and there were other such court cases, uh, the end result is but uh, 2007, diacetyl was no longer the flavoring that was used in microwave uh, popcorn. <laughs> so here is something that at first really does sound like junk science, you know? I mean, who would think that, you know, eating microwave popcorn can have an uh, effect on your health? But as you can see, uh, there is justification here, and it depends on which expert you know you you rely on. Yeah. Yes, butter is butter. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but perhaps the most famous lawsuit that comes you know in sort of into this category was one launched in 1994 against McDonald's. And this, of course, was the hot coffee uh, episode where um, uh, 
lady had spilled uh, McDonald's coffee in her lap and sued for that coffee being too hot. Now, of course, headlines like this, or all kinds of headlines appeared about this story, mostly making fun of it. You know, I mean, uh, if you spill hot coffee in your lap, you know, the, why, why should the purveyor of that coffee be uh, liable? And uh, uh, indeed, uh, it was a, a case that got tremendous uh, amount of publicity, including shown pictures of, of the injury, which I won't show because they're really too disturbing. But she really was terribly burned. I mean, there were stories about this that even appeared in, in, in cartoons. So anyway, the story was that she had been driving with her grandson and they had parked in the parking lot. He had gone in to get her coffee. He brought out the coffee and uh, she took it and she held it between her knees while she was going to put on her seatbelt. Okay. And the coffee spilled and she got third degree burns and, and, and really they were terrible burns. You wouldn't think that spilling hot coffee like that could cause such terrible burns, but, but it can. And just to show you how uh, important this was in terms of news, it even made it into Seinfeld, right? And there was the episode where Kramer spills the hot coffee in, in his, uh, his lap. So anyway, she sued. She sued and eventually got a judgment of 2.5 million. And this was uh, essentially made fun of in, uh, in many newspaper articles, you know, I mean, you know how, how can you get a millions of dollars for being so stupid as to spill a lot of coffee in, in your lap? What was the crux of the matter here? Is that there was precedence because McDonald's had been warned a large number of times that they were serving their coffee too hot. I mean, no one had been injured to this extent before, but there were people who had complained of getting burned from, uh, from the coffee and that the coffee was too hot. And they had been told to reduce the temperature at which it was served. She originally would have agreed to an apology from McDonald's with a small settlement uh, that would cover her hospital expenses. She would have agreed to that. But when McDonald's refused because they said, it's your fault, that's when she sued. And that's when all of this came out that they had been previously warned. And that was the, um, the truth here. So it was not really junk science. You know, when you look deeply enough, uh, of course, they still made fun of it, you know, avoid pouring on crotch, etc. And you would think, <laughs> you would think that this is uh, a story that is over. Well, no. Quite recently, we now have a lawsuit in British Columbia where when a customer was handed the hot coffee in a drive-thru, the uh, whatever they call them, not a waiter, I guess, the, whoever the server there happened to tip it and poured it on uh, 
uh, on the customer, so customer uh, sued. So again, not really junk science because it's precedent. But how about this one? The famous Budweiser lawsuit. If you ever seen the Budweiser ads on TV, you see lots of pretty women on beaches drinking Budweiser and happily cavorting. Well, a man sued because he had been drinking Budweiser and no pretty young women appeared <laughs> to run around with him. It is real. It went to court. It went to court. There's the, the report of it. Of course, the court did not buy it uh, and uh, he did not get anything. He had been seeking damages of $10,000, as you can see. He claimed the ads had led him to drink Anheuser-Busch products and that had caused him physical and mental injury, emotional distress and financial loss because he had invested in this, hoping that women would come to him like, uh, like flies. But then how about this one? Red Bull gives you wings. A class action lawsuit was launched against that. Why? Because Red Bull does not literally give you wings. So therefore, it's said that this is false advertising. That, uh, uh, you know, the, the message here really was that it's an energy drink and that it energizes you. But the fact is that the only substance in that beverage that can energize is caffeine. But believe it or not, Red Bull contains less caffeine than a cup of coffee. And that was the crux of the matter. The suit was that therefore it was ridiculous to say that Red Bull gives you wings when it has nothing but caffeine less than a cup of coffee. And Red Bull ended up paying $13 million to anyone who claimed that they had bought Red Bull thinking that it gives them wings. Didn't, there was no proof required. All you had to do was write them a letter saying that you had bought uh, Red Bull. Now, the $13 million was the total amount that Red Bull paid out, but each person was limited to, I think, $10 or so. But I want to finish off with uh, one of the more serious legal uh, stories. And this is about vaccines and the original allegation that they cause autism. And this all stems from uh, a paper submitted to the British Journal Lancet by Dr. Andrew Wakefield, a British gastroenterologist. And the scientific paper published in the Lancet claimed that there was a link between children who had been uh, given the MMR vaccine and autism, that the risk was increased. Turned out that that is just not true. And the paper was eventually retracted. But worse than that, turned out that the data were fraudulent. The data had been made up because what Wakefield was trying to do uh, was to get money from insurance companies. He was actually in cahoots with some parents who were going to claim 
insurance money, saying that their children had been injured by, by the vaccine. His medical license was taken away. He actually left England, came to North America, Texas, and he's there, and he has become an anti-vaccine spokesperson, amazingly. And uh, he gets a lot of publicity because, of course, his name is well known from the original story. And uh, it is very clear what happened. It was widely investigated. Uh, the whole investigation was published in British Medical Journal about how he had conspired to uh, make money. And uh, there's an excellent book by Brian Deere, a British investigative journalist about the doctor who fooled the world, Andrew Wakefield. Anyway, uh, Wakefield sued Deere and the British Medical Journal for defamation. Of course, the court found against him because there was no defamation. Everything that was said was totally uh, correct. But he is um, amazingly popular in the US as an anti-vaccine spokesperson. And he's got these legions of followers who claim that he was made a scapegoat. This is absolutely total nonsense. But he goes around giving talks, getting twenty-five dollars to $30,000 per talk, almost as much as I get here. <laughs> and he has, he has become a, a, a personality. He uh, left his wife and has taken up with Elle McPherson, the, the former uh, model. And uh, he's all over the place, including lecturing on these conspiracy cruises <laughs> together with some other notables, people who believe in, in UFOs. Uh, <laughs> And I like this one here, down here, who's a spiritual space cleaner. I don't know what it, I don't know what spiritual place is, and I don't know if your spiritual space gets dirty, how you would clean it, but that's the man to go to. Uh, you can see some of the others, paranormal investigator, uh, spiritual teacher, conspiracies investigator, well, I should be investigating Andrew Wakefield. Anyway, including Sherry Tenpenny, who you see there, who's a medical doctor, also big wheel in the anti-vax movement. And uh, she is one of these who claims that if you get the COVID vaccine, you're being injected with some magnetic material so that uh, uh, Bill Gates can follow you. <laughs> I mean, these are such ludicrous ideas. But uh, then she even testifies, you know, in public meetings about how you become magnetic, you know, when you get the vaccine, showing that case there you see nickel being attracted. Well, I've actually tried this. I mean, I've been vaccinated and yeah. <laughs> metal sticks <laughs> as long as you know how to make it make, make it stick so uh, anyway I, I can tell you that if this went to court 
uh, it would not pass the Dober challenge <laughs> because uh, obviously it is done by uh, uh, straightforward trickery. Uh, but uh, as you can see, there really are a lot of very interesting uh, cases when it comes to, to the courtroom where science uh, plays a role. And uh, judges these days have the task of, of deciding who is expert enough to testify. And that, that is not a small challenge. Anyway, so that's our story for today. Uh, all right, so if anyone has any questions, yeah. Yes, yeah, I, this is, uh, of course, a, a Johnson & Johnson and the uh, talcum powder asbestos contaminated. Um, of course, Johnson & Johnson has already paid out millions, millions of dollars in this without ever admitting any liability. Uh, that, that is very often the, the situation in these cases, that, that the company doesn't admit liability, but they pay because they say that it is cheaper in the long run for them to pay than to go through all of the, you know, I mean, especially in, in the US, the legal fees are, are tremendous. Well, uh, it's hard to know what to say about this because it, it, in fact, it's very similar to the Dobert case because Johnson & Johnson has shown all kinds of evidence that the incidence of ovarian cancer is no greater in women who have used the talcum powder than in women who did not. But on the other hand, uh, women who have ovarian cancer will have some remnants of asbestos in their in, in the ovarian tissue. And Johnson and Johnson says, well, that really isn't enough to know because you'd have to examine women who don't have ovarian cancer to see whether or not they also have uh, you know, uh, remnants of asbestos. That's, that's where it stands. Uh, and, but the, the crux of the matter is that the, the claim is that Johnson Johnson knew early on that the talcum powder was contaminated with asbestos. And even though they didn't know that that would be linked to uh, ovarian cancer, it was already known that asbestos is not a good thing. So just the fact that they knew that there was asbestos in the powder. Well, the, the thing is that the talcum, wherever talcum is mined, is also where you find asbestos. So it, it you know, it, it, it's pretty well accepted that, that that argument is legitimate, that there was asbestos in the powder. But whether or not it led to the ovarian cancer, uh, there just is, is, there's no conclusive evidence uh, for it. It may or may not. And, you know, the, and this is also, you know, it's important to understand that, that uh, liability is not proven by a company paying out money. That, that's very often the case to say, well, you know, yes, we will settle without admitting liability. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think some companies have been sued, 
Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, this is the leaded cadmium in the dark chocolate uh, problem. Uh, I, I think that that is really an overblown situation. The amount of lead in there is, is not enough to cause, uh, uh, cause a problem. Uh, yeah, uh, you know, this is, it, it's, a, it's a big problem with the, what we call the ambulance chasing lawyers. You know, and especially in the US, you will see lawyers advertising all over the place, you know, have you had surgery, come see us, you know, this kind of stuff. So wherever there is any sort of potential problem toxicity, they see if they can make a case for it. And, and very often it's, uh, you don't pay them unless they get a settlement, which is very inviting for people, you know, I say, well, why, you know, why not? What do I have to lose? I'll sue. If we win, great. If we don't win, I'm not out anything. Uh, so it, we don't have that problem to that extent in Canada. We don't. You don't get the frivolous lawsuits. Yeah. Uh, I read somewhere on the internet. Yeah, I know you don't have to agree with. Uh, the body produces protein in old age that may have influence on arthritis and pain. Yeah, for sure. So. What do you think of the idea of using multi-enzyme therapy? Well, the most cases where you hear of enzyme therapy are bogus because enzymes are proteins. And as soon as you eat the protein that gets into your stomach, uh, where it is degraded, it's broken down into amino acids. So if you're talking about enzyme therapy, validity only occurs if it is injected not if it's taken orally. And yes, I mean, that certainly could, could be legitimate. Uh, we, we know that there are proteins that are linked to arthritis and there are enzymes that can break down those proteins. So yeah, it, there's viability there, but not if it's oral. Yeah. You know, uh, obviously in Canada, there's dozens and dozens of different kinds of supplements Minimal. First of all, there's more than a dozen. There's there's eighty thousand. There are eighty thousand supplements that are on the market, and in order to get these on the market, uh, you need what is called a natural products number, an NPN number, which is issued by Health Canada. But the only thing that Health Canada requires is evidence that the thing is not harmful. You do not have to show efficacy. As long as it's not harmful, you can sell it and you can put the NPN number on it, which of course suggests to the public, because this is a government issued number, that therefore the government must think that it works, right? No, the only thing it means is that there's no evidence of, of harm because uh, the argument on the government side, on Health Canada side, is that you cannot accept, you cannot expect these supplement producers to go through the same kind of evaluation with double-blind, randomized, you know, studies as you expect from prescription drugs because they just don't have the funds to do that. 
I don't think that's a legitimate argument. I don't think that that needs to be considered. Of course, the government considers everything, including how much taxes, you know, something will, will bring in. But I mean, if you want to think about it on a practical basis, if, if you have a product on the market that claims to have some sort of health effect, you should expect evidence. Never mind if it's marketed by Big Pharma or by some supplement manufacturer. They should be made to provide the evidence. Yeah. Which? Thalidomide, yeah. Yes, thalidomide is a very interesting story, and it's a story that is often not told properly. Okay? Uh, when thalidomide was introduced as a medication to prevent morning sickness for, for women, thalidomide had already a history of, of use for anti-nausea, except not in pregnant women, but you know it had been on the market for a while. However, when the company wanted to uh, sell it for pregnancy, it was tested. It was tested in rodents and it was tested in primates. Okay. The trouble was that this is one case where the animal model is not a good model for humans because the problem did not show up in the rodents and it did not show up in, in the primates. And it, it did show up. In, so, you know, I mean, th this is, um, you know, often sort of, of used as an example of big pharma or governments having gone astray for having allowed that on, on the market. But the fact is that when Thalumat was put on the market, the law was followed completely. All the testing that was expected to be done was done. It was one of these rare occasions where, uh, it only was revealed in, uh, in humans. Uh, the, uh, most of the, there were about 10,000 children born with malformed limbs. Uh, the vast majority, except for a couple of handful, were in Europe. And the reason for that not happening in North America was thanks to Dr. Francis Kelsey, a McGill graduate, who was working for FDA in the US. And when she was given the uh, company application for selling it in the US, and you can imagine, I mean, this is reams and reams of paper of, you know, of the experiments that, that were done. She looked at that and she saw that there, were, there was some data uh, actually in, in women that they felt tingling in the fingertips after they had taken thalidomide. And that raised an alarm for her because that means that it could have neurological consequences. And she would not allow it to, uh, to pass. And she was hounded by the company, the manufacturer, wanting you know, to force her to allow it. And it was while that was going on that the information came to light in Germany of the informations. So it was her obstinance at not allowing it to pass that saved a lot of North American, uh, uh, yeah. yeah. In terms of uh, cell radiation, close proximity of uh, baby children, uh, very young, uh, 
there's some talk that this may cause. Yeah, there's a lot of talk with absolutely zero evidence. Zero evidence. Zero evidence. Thank you very much. Yeah. <laughs> I just thought that what you were having on my story just recently, uh, Elizabeth Holmes with the red fish. Is that her name? Or Elizabeth Holmes, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So it just shows you she makes billions of dollars. Yeah. People bought her. Well, they bought her story because it was a good story. It was a very good story. I mean, uh, Elizabeth Holmes' company was uh, a company that supposedly was able to do blood tests and diagnose various, uh, you know, diseases, you know, uh, and that she had some, she had developed uh, some machine that could do this. There was no such machine. What she was doing was using other companies' machines, which could detect certain contaminants in the blood or do certain blood tests. And she would put all the data together from all the, the other machines. So it all sounded legitimate at, at, at first, you know. Oh, she fooled a lot of people. There's a fantastic documentary about her on Netflix. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. But she didn't get away with it. It was interesting because of the last story. Yep, it is interesting, and, uh, and uh, I mean, that really was junk science. That really was, because I mean, it, there was no science to it at all. It was essentially uh, fraud. And yeah, but it's a, if you've not seen that documentary, you should watch it on Netflix. Uh, I, I don't know what the title is, but but. Uh, it might be Holmes, yeah. And anyway, it's, so she just went to jail last week, yeah. And I think she was sentenced to what eleven years, so she may serve a few months. <laughs> yeah. No, no. The only the only concern for baby powder was ovarian cancer. That's the only thing. But never. Yeah, but. Yeah, but there was never any any link to that. No, no one has ever even brought that up. Yeah. Which is also interesting, because it would argue against it being causative, right? Because then you would expect it to cause other cancers as well. Yeah. Who? Oh, Fabricant, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, that, that was a big, a big story at Concordia. Yeah. Oh, oh, of course, that's a different person. Oh, no, no, Fabricant was a professor at Concordia, who was a murderer. Nothing to do with this Fabricant. Yeah. I don't know, I don't remember now what happened to him. I, I, he's in jail, he didn't die. In, uh... Is he? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that, that was an awful case. I mean, I don't remember how many people he, how many people, three professors, yeah, he killed. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
There is. I wouldn't worry about it. The amount of lead in the chocolate is, is trivial. If you're eating enough chocolate to worry about the lead, you should be much more worried about the sugar in the chocolate. Forget it, especially at your age. They, if, if there's any concern there, it would be in the embryo or in an infant, not, not in an adult. Lead is not an issue in adults. Eat as much as you want. Yeah. You, you couldn't eat enough to, to have a problem. But, you know, if, if, if it's a one-year-old child, that's a different story. The lead is a problem when the nervous system is developing, not once it has developed. All right, we'll see you next month.